first visit to a coal mine will be prolific of strange sights and sounds and of novel sensations. If one enters the mine by a shaft, the first noteworthy experience will be the descent of the cage or carriage. It swings slightly as you step onto it, just enough to make you realize that you have passed from the stable to the unstable and that besides the few inches of planking under your feet, there is nothing between you and the floor of the mine 500 feet or more below you. Your first sensation will be that of falling. It will seem as though that on which you were standing has been suddenly removed from beneath your feet and your impulse will be to grasp for something above you. You will hardly have recovered from this sensation when it will seem to you that the motion of the carriage has been reversed and that you are now going up more rapidly than you were at first descending. There will be an alternation of these sensations during the minute or two occupied in the descent until finally the motion of the carriage becomes suddenly slower and you feel it strike gently at the bottom of the shaft. As you step out into the darkness, nothing is visible to you except the shifting flames of the workmen's lamps. You cannot even see distinctly the men who carry them. After a few minutes, you are able to distinguish objects that are 10 or 15 feet away. You can see through the murky atmosphere the rough walls of solid coal about you, the flat, black, moist roof overhead, the minecar tracks at your feet. The carriages appear and disappear and are loaded and unloaded at the foot of the shaft while the passage, at one side of which you sit, is filled with mine cars, mules, and driver boys in apparently inextricable confusion. The body of a mule looms up suddenly in front of you. You catch a glimpse of a boy hurrying by, a swarthy face, lighted up by the flame of a lamp, gleams out of the darkness, and the body that belongs to it is in deep shadow. You cannot see it bare, brawny arms become visible and are withdrawn. Men's voices sound strange. There is a constant rumbling of cars, a regular clicking sound as the carriage stops and starts, incessant shouting by the boys, somewhere the sound of falling water. Such are the sights and sounds at the shaft's foot. If now you pass in along the gangway, you will be apt to throw the light of your lamp to your feet to see where you are stepping. You will experience a sense of confinement in the narrow passage with its low roof and close black walls. Occasionally, you will have to crowd against the rib to let a trip of mine cars drawn by a smoking mule in charge of a boy with soiled face and greasy clothes pass by. You are lucky if you are in a mine where the roof is so high that you need not bend over as you walk. The men whom you meet have little lamps on their caps, smoking and flaring in the strong air current. Everything here is black and dingy. There is no color relief to outline the form of any object. Now you come to a door on the upper side of the gangway. A small boy jumps from a bench and pulls the door open for the party to pass through. As it closes behind you, the strong current of air nearly extinguishes your lamp. You walk along the airway for a little distance, and then you come to the foot of a chamber. Up somewhere in the darkness, apparently far away, you see lights twinkling, four of them. 
They appear and disappear. They bob up and down. They waver from side to side till you wonder what strange contortions the people who carry them must be going through to give them such erratic movements. By and by there is a cry of fire. The cry is repeated several times. Three lights move down the chamber toward you and suddenly disappear. Then the fourth one approaches, apparently with more action, and disappears also. The men who carry them have hidden behind pillars. You wait one, two, three minutes, looking into darkness. Then there is a sudden wave-like movement in the air. It strikes your face. You feel it in your ears. The flame of your lamp is blown aside. Immediately, there is the sound of an explosion and the crash of falling blocks of coal. The waves of disturbed air still touch your face gently. Soon the lights reappear, all four of them, and advance toward the face. In a minute, they are swallowed up in the powder smoke that has rolled out from the blast. You see only a faint blur, and their movements are indistinct. But when the smoke has reached and passed you, the air is clearer again, and the lights twinkle and dance as merrily as they did before the blast was fired. Up at the face, there is a scene of great activity. Bare-armed men, without coat or vest, are working with bar and pick and shovel, moving the fallen coal from the face, breaking it, loading it into the mine car which stands nearby. The miners are at the face, prying down loose pieces of coal. One takes his lamp in his hand and flashes its light along the black, broken, shiny surface, deciding upon the best point to begin the next drill hole, discussing the matter with his companion, giving quick orders to the laborers, acting with energy and a will. If you were there alone, the only living being in the mine, you would experience a different set of sensations. If you stood or sat motionless, you would find the silence oppressive. One who has not had this experience can have no adequate conception of the profound stillness of a deserted mine. On the surface of the earth, one cannot find a time nor a place in which the ear is not assailed by noises. The stirring of the grasses in the field at midnight sends sound waves traveling through space. Wherever there is life, there is motion, and wherever there is motion, there is sound. But down here, there is no life, no motion, no sound. The silence is not only oppressive, it is painful. It becomes unbearable. No person could be long subjected to it and retain his reason. There is no darkness on the surface of the earth that is at all comparable with the darkness of the mine. On the surface, the eyes can grow accustomed to the deepest gloom of night. Clouds cannot shut out every ray of light from hidden moon or stars, but down in the mine, whether in nighttime or daytime, there is no possible lightening up of the gloom by nature. She cannot send her brightest sunbeam through the 300 feet of solid rock. If one is in the mines without a light, he has before him, behind him, everywhere, 
utter blackness. There comes a time in the history of every mine when it is pervaded only by silence and darkness. All the coal that can be carried from it by the shaft or slope or other outlet has been mined and taken out and the place is abandoned. But before this comes to pass, the work of robbing the pillars must be done. This work consists in breaking from the pillars as much coal as can possibly be taken without too great risk to the workmen. The process is begun at the faces of the chambers, at the farthest extremity of the mine, and the work progresses constantly toward the shaft or other opening by which the coal is taken out. It can readily be seen that robbing pillars is a dangerous business, for so soon as the column becomes too slender to support the roof, it will give way and the slate and rock will come crashing down into the chamber. The workmen must be constantly on the alert, watchful for every sign of danger, but at the best, some will be injured. Some will, perhaps, be killed by the falling masses from the roof. Yet this work must be done. Otherwise, coal mining would not be profitable. The waste would be too great. The coal that can be taken out under the prevailing systems will average only 50% of the whole body in the mine and at least 10% more will be lost in waste at the breaker, so that it behooves a company to have its pillars robbed as closely as possible. Sometimes only a small piece of slate, not larger perhaps than a shingle, will come down. Again, the roof of an entire chamber will fall. The falls that are limited in extent, that are confined to a single chamber or the face of a chamber, do not interfere with the pillars and can be readily cleared away. They are due to lack of support for the roof, to insufficient propping and injudicious blasting, and may to a great extent be guarded against successfully by care and watchfulness. But to foresee or prevent the more extended falls is often impossible. They are due to the general pressure of overlying strata over a considerable area, and both props and pillars give way under so great a strain. Sometimes they come without a moment's warning. Usually, however, their approach is indicated by unmistakable signs, days or even weeks in advance of the actual fall. There will be cracks in the roof. Small pieces of slate will drop to the floor, the distance between floor and roof will grow perceptibly less. Pillars will bulge in the middle, and little fragments of coal not larger than peas will break from them with a crackling sound and fall to the floor. This crackling and falling is known as working, and this general condition is called a crush or a squeeze. If one stands quite still in a section of a mine where there is a squeeze, he will hear about him coming from the working pillars, these faint crackling noises, like the snapping of dry twigs under the feet. It's often impossible to prevent or even to guard against those falls which cover a large area, though their coming may be heralded for days by the working of pillars and all the indications of a squeeze. This was the case at the fall in the Carbondale Mines in 1846, one of the most extensive falls that has ever been known. It covered an area of from 40 to 50 acres. Fourteen persons were killed by it, and the bodies of eight of them were never recovered. 
Although this disaster occurred more than 40 years ago, the writer had the privilege, in the summer of 1888, of hearing an account of it from one of the survivors, Mr. Andrew Bryden. Mr. Bryden is now, and has been for many years, one of the general mining superintendents for the Pennsylvania Coal Company, with headquarters at Pittston, Pennsylvania. His story of the fall is as follows. This disaster occurred on the 12th day of January, 1846, at about 8 o'clock in the forenoon. It was in drifts number one and number two of the Delaware and Hudson Canal Company's mines at Carbondale. We heard the fall. It came like a thunderclap. We felt the concussion distinctly, and the rush of air put out our lights. I and those who were working with me knew that the fall had come, and we thought it better to try immediately to find our way out. Although we had no idea that the fall had been so extensive or the calamity so great. We had gone but a little way before we saw the effects of the tremendous rush of air. Loaded cars had been lifted and thrown from the track, and the heavy walls with which entrances were blocked had been torn out and the debris scattered through the chambers. We began then to believe that the fall had been a large one, but before we reached the line of it, we met a party of twenty-five or thirty men. They were much frightened and were running in toward the face of the heading, the point from which we had just come. They said that the entire mine had caved in, that the fall had extended close up to the faces of the chambers along the line of solid coal, leaving no possible means of escape in the direction we were going, and that the only safe place in the entire section was the place which we were leaving. We were greatly discouraged by the news that these men told us, and we turned back and went with them into the face of the heading. We had little hope of being able to get out through the body of the fall, the way in which we did finally escape, for we knew that the roof had been breaking down that morning in the lower level. Indeed, we could hear it at the moment, cracking, crashing, and falling with a great noise. We felt that the only safe place was at the face of the heading where we were, and most of the party clung closely to it. Some of us would go out the last entrance to listen and investigate, but the noise of the still-falling roof was so alarming that no one dared venture farther. After a long time spent thus in waiting, I suggested that we should start out in parties of three or four, so that we should not be in each other's way, and so that all of us should not be exposed to the same particular danger and try to make our way through the fall. But the majority of the men were too much frightened to accede to this proposition. They were determined that we should all remain together. So when some of us started out, the whole body rushed out after us and followed along until we came to the line of the fall. We had succeeded in picking our way but a short distance through the fallen portion of the mine when we met my father, Alexander Bryden, coming toward us. He was foreman of the mine. We heard him calling us out before he reached us, and you may be sure that no more welcome sound ever struck our ears. He was outside when the fall came, but the thunder of it had scarcely ceased before he started in to learn its extent and to rescue, if possible, the endangered men. He made his way over hills of fallen rock, he crawled under leaning slabs of slate, he forced his body through apertures scarcely large enough to admit it. He hurried under hanging pieces of roof that crashed down in his path the moment he had passed, and finally he came to us. 
I have no doubt that he was as glad to find us and help us as we were to see him. Then he led us back through the terrible path by which he had come and brought us beyond the fall to a place of safety. When we were there, my father asked if any person had been left inside, and he was told that one, Dennis Farrell, was at the face of his chamber so badly injured across his spine that he could not walk. The miners in their retreat to the face of our heading had found him lying under a heavy piece of coal. They had rolled it off from him, but seeing that he could not walk, they set him up in the corner of his chamber, thinking it might be as safe a place as the one to which we were going, and gave him a light and left him. My father asked if anyone would go in with him and help carry Dennis out, but none of them dared to go. It was too dangerous a journey. So my father made his way back alone through the fallen mine and found the crippled and imprisoned miner. The man was totally helpless, and my father lifted him to his back and carried him as far as he could. He climbed with him over the hills of broken rock, and finally he brought him out to where the other men were. And they carried him to the surface a mile farther and then to his home. Dennis and his brother John were working the chamber together, and when the piece of coal fell upon Dennis, his brother ran into the next chamber for help. He had scarcely got in when the roof of the chamber fell and buried him, and he was never seen again, alive or dead. It was only a little while after we got out before the roof fell in on the way we had come and closed it up, and it was not opened again for a year afterward. The bodies of some of those who were shut in by the fall or buried under it were found when the drift was again opened. But for others, the mine has been an undisturbed grave for more than 40 years. In our modern ears, the word damp brings with it an inseparable association with moisture. But the word's older, earlier meaning can still be heard in the verb dampen, which in addition to make a little bit wet, can also mean to weaken or extinguish, something you might do to a sound or to someone's expectations. A damp, in this sense, is a thing that muffles or chokes. And so, while a coal mine was often a dank place to spend your day, the series of damps that miners have identified over the years are not emanations of humidity, but of various kinds of suffocation. In 1686, the British naturalist Robert Plot, known to his contemporaries as the learned Dr. Plot, partially on the strength of his conclusion that a dinosaur femur bone he studied must have belonged to a giant human being from a bygone age, itemized five subterranean damps that haunted the coalfields of Staffordshire. The first four he called positive damps, and these were smoke damp, peas blossom damp, globe damp, and fulminating damp. Smoke damp turns out to be anticlimatically just smoke, usually from the fires the miners would light to soften the coal and rock for easier digging. Of the mysterious peas blossom damp, Little is said about it but that it would extinguish the miners' lamps, 
and that its aroma of pea blossoms warned underground workers to flee to fresher air before they too were extinguished. Globe damp, also called pestilential damp, meant somewhat improbably literal globe-shaped constellations of smog made up from a mixture of candle smoke and vapor from the miners' exhalations and sweat, wrapped in a thin skin resembling a cobweb. When these globes grew to the size of a soccer ball, Dr. Plot tells us, they were prone to burst open, asphyxiating everyone in breathing distance. Saving the best for last, fulminating damps were literally explosive, combusting on contact with spark or fire with great violence. To this list of positive damps, Plot adds one so-called privative damp, want of air, by which he means not quite a vacuum, but something more like air without any air in it. The human need for oxygen would not be discovered for another century, but Dr. Plot had the gist of it. By the time the Industrial Age was underway, the chemical composition of the terrestrial gases, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and so on, had been mapped out pretty thoroughly, but to most miners, the respiratory hazards of the mine were still apprehended as a catalog of damps, by this time known as black damp, white damp, stink damp, and fire damp. Black damp, also called choke damp, was carbon dioxide, a common byproduct of coal being newly exposed to air. In sufficient concentration, it could and often would suffocate you, corresponding to Dr. Plot's want of air. White damp, sometimes called after damp because of its tendency to emerge after a mine fire, was carbon monoxide, a highly deadly combustion product. Today we consider carbon monoxide to be odorless, but many older accounts describe white damp as smelling of sweet flowers, like a pea blossom, possibly because it was accompanied by some other product of combustion. Its lack of odor was reliable enough, though, that over the centuries, miners learned to bring several types of harbinger animals into the mines with them to warn that white damp was lurking. By the early 1900s, canaries were agreed to be the best detectors because of their high sensitivity to carbon monoxide, but also because, somewhat miraculously, they could often be revived after being brought to fresher air, seemingly no worse for wear. A pigeon, mouse, or rabbit that succumbed to the gas was much less likely to be made whole. No one seems to know just what Dr. Plot's globe damp was supposed to be, but industrial miners replaced it with a new one, stink damp, or hydrogen sulfide, released by the decomposition of iron pyrite, or fool's gold. It stinks of rotten eggs, thanks to the sulfur content, but at high concentrations it also deadens the sense of smell. At such concentrations it can make itself first known in the form of convulsions, coma, and death. Finally, fire damp, which Dr. Plot had called fulminating damp, is methane, a byproduct of coal formation itself. The coalification process is essentially a hundreds of millions of years transformation of plant matter made up of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and a little sulfur into increasingly pure grades of carbon. In the earlier phases, when peat is transforming into lignite, simple dehydration accounts for a lot of this purification as hydrogen and oxygen escape as water under persistent heat and pressure. Around the time lignite starts to turn into bituminous coal at temperatures just sufficient to bake a casserole, methane is created. 
Trapped under tons of rock and soil with no place to go, it fills the pores of the coal seam until the day someone or something comes along and decides to expose it to the open air. Methane is explosively flammable, and the deeper you go underground, the more of it there is. Fire damp was an existential terror to miners up into the 20th century, since the only source of light available to a coal miner till that time was an open flame. Safety lamps, first developed in the 1810s, gave some protection, but early models were pretty fragile for a rocky, underlit environment such as a coal mine, and more than one mine explosion was sparked by a safety lamp that didn't do its job right. Even after the introduction of electric lamps in the 1890s, fire damp explosions were still fairly common. Open flame was still necessary to light the charges that loosened coal from the coal face, and if the seam had any hard minerals in it, pick work could also easily set off sparks. Fire damp only really emerged as a hazard in the 1600s. Before then, coal works weren't deep enough for methane to accumulate. The original way of dealing with fire damp, dating to the 1670s, was to send a man in the mine covered in wet rags and equipped with a long pole with a lit candle at the end of it. The man would crawl forward on his belly, holding his fire stick out in front of him until whatever gas was there ignited. The job was worse on Mondays, given the opportunity for more gas to accumulate on the Lord's Day when the mine was vacant. Eventually, it was discovered that the process could be made a little safer by sending the lit candle down into the depths using strings and pulleys. The more durable cure for fire damp, as for all damps, was fairly simple, ventilation. Even Dr. Plott knew in 1683 that damps accumulated in stagnant air. As he put it, there was no commerce between the air in the mine and the air above ground. Starting in the Victorian era, the entry-level job in a coal mine, usually given to boys too young and too small to dig or haul coal, was the trapper, who opened and closed wooden trap doors to various sections of the mine so that fresh air could circulate. Air currents were controlled with a furnace, which generated a chimney effect. Later, steam-powered and then diesel-powered blowers and fans would be added. These reduced, but did not eliminate, methane explosions, which continued to occur throughout the 20th century, and which still occur even to this day. Just one month before I sat down to write the first draft of this episode, a coal mine in Amasra, Turkey, exploded, killing 41 miners and sending 10 more to the hospital. The mine operators reported that their ventilation system was working perfectly, but the head of the union retorted that inspections had been recently reduced because of staff and budget cuts. The very first thing was last time we were here, you had a strike call. Oh, yeah. Remember that? I got it. We need, because... I got it. Because I remember the strike call had a list of the demands in it, didn't it? Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Well, what I want is, I'd like it if you could just read those demands to us. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Yeah. Let me see first. I think I got them in one of these books. Okay. You want me to look too? I remember yeah, what it looked yeah. like. It had the strike call on the front. Oh, look. No. Oh, here we are. You want me to read it? Yeah. Just just read it exactly the yeah. uh, 
First, demand recognition of the union. Second, we demand the 10% advance in wages on tonnage rates. Third, we demand on an eight-hour workday for all classes of labor in or around the coal mines and at the coke ovens. Fourth, we demand pay for all narrow work and dead work, which includes brushing, timbering, removing falls, handling, impurities, and so far. Fifth, we demand the Czech women at all mines to be elected by the miners without any interference by company officials in said election. Sixth, we demand the right to uh, trade in any store we please and the right to choose our own boarding places and our own doctor. Seven, we demand the enforcement of the Colorado mining laws and the abolition of the notorious and criminal guard system, which has prevailed in the mining camps of Colorado for many years. On September 14, 1913, United Mine Workers District 15 held a strike vote, meeting at Castle Hall in Trinidad. The vote to ratify the strike demands was unanimous. Many of these demands were already enshrined in Colorado law, though the young state, just 37 years old at the time, had neither the budget nor the political apparatus to enforce them. A couple of these demands, such as the eight-hour day, had already been implemented by some of the coal companies in the area to help preempt union momentum, but the union wanted them observed in every mine. Recognition of the union was the first demand on the list for good reason. In negotiation after negotiation and in numerous statements to the press, the operators insisted they were prepared to negotiate on every single one of the material demands issued by the miners. But both sides knew that none of these demands were actually enforceable without formal union recognition. Without a contract and the leverage of the strike, all the mine workers had was the boss's promise they'd do better. And it was amply clear from past experience what that was worth. So what were some of these material demands? To start with the obvious, there was the matter of pay. Though many workers in and around the mines were paid a daily wage, the workers formerly called miners, the ones who extracted coal from the coal face and loaded it into rail cars, were paid by the ton. Anyone who has done piecework already knows that this invariably raises a question. A ton of what? For example, coal in the seam was often interlaced with stone, soil, or clay, which would have to be separated out before the usable coal could be loaded into the cars. This waste material was called gob or bony, and the piles of it that accumulated in each room would often serve as gathering places at lunchtime. The mine operators maintained that despite the physical evidence of these ubiquitous piles and heaps, so much gob and bony was making it into the cars that only as little as two-thirds of the coal coming out of their mines could be sent to market. The amount of purported waste per car was determined by someone called a dock boss, who in non-union mines was employed by the coal company. The American ton, then as now, was 2,000 pounds, but by convention, mine operators inflated the weight of a ton to account for waste. A 3,000-pound ton of coal was typical. 3,300 pounds to the ton was not unknown. 
In areas where mine workers had already won union recognition, for example in southern Illinois, they'd been able to bargain a ton of coal down to a compromise weight of 2,200 pounds, but that was about as good as it got. And of course in southern Colorado, most mines had yet to recognize the union. How could miners be sure the weighing of their coal was even accurate in the first place? After all, they stayed below when their cars were hauled by mule train up to the tipple to be weighed. A person called a check weighman was employed by miners to validate the weight reported by the weigh boss, who, like the dock boss, was notorious for fudging numbers. But without a union contract, it could be difficult to get a check weighman into the mines or enclosed camp even through the camp gates. To add insult to injury, not even all pure, unadulterated coal was included in each ton weighed. It was common for smaller pieces called slack coal to be removed before weighing on the grounds that no one wanted to buy them. That wasn't quite the case. There was a secondary market for slack coal, but nonetheless, it didn't count towards the miner's weight. Lump coal, in chunks no smaller than a chicken egg, got the best price. The slightly smaller sized nut coal was also prized. To incentivize collection in these dimensions, coal would be conveyed over a screen or grate on its way to the scales. As the coal passed over the screens, the smaller pieces would fall away. Whatever made it to the scale was what the miner was paid for. The proper weight of a ton aside, getting paid by weight also meant that miners were only directly paid for digging and loading coal, which comprised a much smaller portion of their time underground than you might expect. A room in a mine often needed to be timbered, for example, to keep the roof from falling in. When carefully installed, vertical props and horizontal crossbars significantly decreased the likelihood of a cave-in, and this work was unpaid. Sometimes there was no timber to stand up and a miner would have to wander the mine looking for spare props, and this work was unpaid. Mules needed to be taken to and from the stables, and this work was unpaid. Track needed to be laid down to run the coal cars on, and this work was unpaid. Sometimes there were no empty cars and a miner would have to wait around for one to arrive, and this time was unpaid. In some years, car shortages accounted for twice as much idle time in the mines as did strikes, cave-ins, or explosions. Collectively, these unpaid tasks were known as dead work. The operators considered dead work a non-issue since payment for the miner's time was supposed to be built into the tonnage rates, but this arrangement created incentives for workers to take shortcuts, since the miner who timbered his room to the highest specifications made no more money per ton of coal than the one who timbered shoddily, or even neglected it altogether, and who, as a consequence, might be able to load an extra car or two of coal that day. Given the tonnage rate at the time, that extra car or two could make an enormous difference. As one miner put it, I need nine cars a day, one for me, one for the old woman, and one for each of the kids. The mine operators also knew they could use the penalty of dead work to punish labor activity. As a Welsh miner named T.X. Evans related, if a boss takes an exception to a man, don't want him, He'll put him up against efficient places and it will cripple him, probably a dollar or two dollars a day, and he has no way in the world to get out of it, only to quit and get out. Evans means cripple here metaphorically in the economic sense, but of course the alternative to performing dead work like timbering was literal crippling, or worse. The prevalence of rock falls during this period illustrates this incentive in action. In the decades spanning 1913 to 1923, 
11% of deaths in the mines nationwide were caused by explosion or fire. 50% were caused by cave-ins and collapses. Some examples from the annual report of the Colorado Inspector of Coal Mines paint the picture. Philip Cardella, Italian, miner, age 22 years, single, employed by the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company at the Gorham Mine, Boulder County, was killed by a fall of coal. The deceased and his partner, Sam Perricone, were shoveling coal into a car on the east side of Room 3 off Entry 75. The place had been visited just prior by the mine foreman, and he found that shots had been fired. This refers to controlled detonations, not gunfire which had shattered the coal and knocked some of it down, and it had also loosened the coal next to the roof. Had the men taken the time to ascertain this fact and either taken it down or secured it by setting props, the accident, no doubt, would have been avoided. Gregory Anastasopoulos, Greek, minor, age 38 years, married, two children, employed by the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company at the Starkville Mine, Los Animas County, was killed by fall of bony coal and rock, the deceased and his partner, Tom Vlahos, were working in room 62 off the C2 entry. The coal and rock, four by three feet dimension and 14 inches thick, suddenly fell from the roof on the deceased, causing instant death. Had another crossbar been set up as provided for in the timber agreement adopted at this mine, the accident might have been avoided. Tony Rizzo, Italian, minor, age 38 years, single, employed by the Temple Fuel Company, at the Kenneth Mine, Los Animas County, with his brother John in the first entry off the slope. The roof at the point where they were working was good, but there occurred a draw rock over the bony coal, and John Rizzo asked the deceased to take it down. He tried to take it down but failed, and he started to work again under it without putting up props to secure it. The result was that in a few minutes the rock fell on the deceased, causing such injuries that he died a short time after. The accident may be charged to the carelessness of the deceased. Garino Volotti, Austrian, minor, age 26 years, single, employed by the Cedar Hill Coal and Coke Company at the Toller Mine, Los Animas County, was killed by a fall of rock in room number three off the 7th South Entry. The roof is soft slate and is dangerous and requires careful propping. Had the deceased timbered his working place according to the method of timbering agreed upon at this mine, and in addition had the roadway been timbered with crossbars every four feet, it probably would have held the rock in place. There were plenty of timbers close at hand. The responsibility of the accident rests with the dead man. Nick Del Duca, Italian, minor, age 56 years, married, four children, employed by the Victor American Fuel Company at the Chandler Mine, Fremont County, was killed by a fall of rock. Deceased had taken down some coal in the face directly in front of the roadway. While in the act of loading a car, a rock fell, knocking him down, and a chunk of coal struck him on the forehead, causing instant death. It seems evident that the deceased had not examined his working place before starting to work. Had he done so, the accident might have been avoided. Luis Esposito, Spaniard, minor, age 23 years, single, employed by the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company at the Frederick Mine, Los Animas County, was killed by a fall of rock in room number three off the 13th West Entry off the main drift. 
Deceased was in front of the roadway taking away the coal when a piece of rock 10 feet long, 8 feet wide, and 14 inches thick fell on him, causing instant death. His partner states they did not know this rock was loose, although there was a slip. However, had they taken the precaution of setting up two props inside of this slip, the accident would have been avoided. Asparamato, Italian, minor, age 27 years, single, employed by the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company at the Tabasco Mine, Las Animas County, was killed by a fall of rock in room four of the third plane of the second south entry. The rope runner on the third plane stated that he was waiting on a trip and that he went in the above stated room to get another loaded car, and in doing so, the rear end of the car knocked out a prop from under a rock along the rails near the coal face. The deceased failed to reset the prop and started to load the next car. While thus engaged, the rock fell on the deceased and killed him almost instantly. The deceased should have reset the prop before continuing his work. Nick Pappas, Greek, minor, age 38 years, single. Employed by the Fox Coal Mining Company at the Fox Mine, Boulder County, was killed by a fall of top coal in room number four. Pappas's death was caused by his own negligence in not timbering the loose coal under which he was working. He had worked in mines for 10 years, and at this mine, the last three winters. They pay in uh, scrip? Well, they didn't pay in scrip, no, but it, you could draw scrip out. You wanted to have some money, and you'd go to the office and you just get the script. They'd give you to run from five cents on up, you know, to I think it'd run to a dollar. It was paper money, you know. They had company stores? Oh, yes, yeah. You trade there or else. You trade into the company stores or down the canyon you go. What do you mean down the canyon? Fire you. You had to spend practically all that you made at the company store. Just like that old song, you know. That was pretty true, the guy that sung that song. He, you pretty well posted on what was going on. Yeah. Above ground, the dangers were of another type. Closed camps offered mine operators near complete control over the lives of mine workers and their families. Armed guards sentried the gates, inside of which everything was owned by the company. You could, if you cared to, shop at a store in a nearby town outside the camp, but you'd usually be fired for it, and because you lived in a company home, that meant you'd be evicted, too. Mine workers were paid monthly, a frequency designed to force them into asking for advances on the next month's wages. These advances were typically paid in scrip, which was private money redeemable only at the company store at around 80 cents on the dollar. Scrip had been outlawed in Colorado in 1899, but it was still in regular use by CF&I and other mining companies in 1913. Without fear of being underbid by competitors, many company stores took on the aspect of an extortion racket. The Colorado Supply Company, which was the general goods store in most CF&I camps, reported a 20% profit throughout the 1910s. The coal companies didn't just have a monopoly on commerce, they had a monopoly on politics as well. Inside the camp, there was no mayor, no town council, no magistrate. On election day, the companies oversaw the polling places located on company property and prepared and counted the ballots, often filling in votes on behalf of their employees whether naturalized or not. The camp marshal represented the authority of the coal company, 
overseeing a dozen or more armed company guards. Technically, the marshal served two masters. He was officially deputized by the county sheriff, but he reported to the mine superintendent, the executive who oversaw the affairs of the mine. Given that even the sheriffs in southern Colorado were essentially vassals of the mine companies, this apparent conflict of interest resolved itself far above the marshal's pay grade. Camp marshals were often given a long leash, as long as they understood correctly that their main job was to keep mine workers and their families as docile and pliant as possible. In the Segundo mining camp, 15 miles west of Trinidad, a marshal named Bob Lee was notorious, particularly among Greeks in the camp, for terrorizing the miners' wives and daughters while all the men were underground. If you infer from this that Bob Lee was a serial rapist, then you share an appreciation of his wickedness with the residents of the camp and several witnesses. Jack McQuarrie, a railroad agent and coal company spy, who later came around to the union cause, would testify that Bob Lee, quote, terrified certain miners' wives into submitting to him by the authority of his star and threatening the loss of their men's jobs. If a woman saw him coming, she'd get up and hike over to a neighbor's house to keep out of the way. McQuarrie, whose job as undersheriff put him into frequent contact with Lee, also added, I've heard him brag as some young Italian wife went by, she's a peach, I'm going to get her. George McGovern and Leonard Guttridge described Lee in their history, the Great Coalfield War, as, quote, a freebooter from the state's lawless yesterday. In fact, Lee built his reputation as a thug, not in Colorado, but just to the south in New Mexico. Some accounts link him to the Frank and Jesse James gang, though this is probably just folklore. Robert Lee was a pretty common name for shitheads from the South in the decades after the Civil War. Either way, Bob Lee came into Colorado in 1903, just in time to help put down the failed 1903-1904 strike in the Southern fields. By 1913, he was a trusted and reliable henchman for Colorado fuel and iron. On September 24, 1913, on the second day of the strike, Bob Lee went out to investigate reports that a group of Greek strikers were sabotaging a company-owned footbridge connecting the old town of Segundo, which was open, to the new part of town, which comprised the closed camp that contained the Segundo mine. The footbridge provided the only direct way for strikebreakers to enter the camp from the open town. The Greeks had come directly from the Namino Saloon, where they may have met to discuss their treatment the day before, when they and other strikers had sent wagons back to camp to collect their belongings, only to have those wagons repeatedly turned back empty by company guards. Lee came upon the bridge on horseback and found four Greek miners there, as advertised, and began herding them back to the other side. After being pressed back a couple hundred yards, one of the men, Tom Larius, took advantage of a moment of inattention by Lee, who was repositioning his horse, to raise the barrel of a shotgun he'd hidden under his coat. Larius fired at close range, blasting away most of Lee's neck with buckshot. Lee fell dead from his horse, and the Greeks scrambled for the hills. Larius was never caught, and none of the others were ever identified. Bob Lee was little mourned. Even people whose sympathies were with the coal companies tended to think he had it coming. In the words of Jack McQuarrie, Bob was a brute. He put the people down on him to such an extent that his killing was not a surprise to any of his friends. Nevertheless, this was the first bloodshed of the strike, and the operators made hay of it in the press. From the start of the conflict, it had always been their plan to use the National Guard to neutralize the strike threat, a strategy which had been very effective in breaking the strike of 1903-1904, not to mention numerous other strikes in the preceding decades. 
In Colorado's first 50 years of statehood, the National Guard was called out 20 times. 15 of those occasions were to quell strikes. And the same story had been duplicated across the United States, the steelworkers' strike at Homestead in 1892, the hard rock miners' strike in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, 1892, the Birmingham, Alabama coal strike of 1908, and numerous others. The killing of Lee, who the coal barons portrayed as a fine gentleman with a Virginian pedigree, provided just the pretext they were waiting for. Clearly, they argued, the unions were either unable or unwilling to dissuade the rank-and-file members from resorting to riot and murder. The operators had already been running a PR campaign that cast the majority of the striking miners as criminals and gangsters, just as the anthracite mine operators in Pennsylvania 40 years earlier had helped bring down the local union there by associating them with an old Irish secret society called the Molly Maguires. This time around, they claimed their foes were racketeers and killers from the Black Hand Society, which at the time was the preferred term for Italian gangsterism. Greek coal miners, who in 1913 were the most recent to arrive in Colorado, were almost invariably presented by the mine operators as hardened veterans of the Balkan Wars, which was supposed to have awakened in them a latent and unslakable bloodlust. When CF&I chairman Lamont Bowers warned about the nefarious outside agitators bringing ferment into the mining camps, he used no shortage of epithets, but as a specific nationality, he name-checked only the Greeks, who he reflexively described as bloodthirsty, almost as if it went without saying. With these kinds of defamations already ringing in the air through whisper campaigns and private correspondence, not to mention the salacious news items CF&I attorney Jesse Northcutt was able to run in the Trinidad newspapers he owned, the operators immediately began to petition the governor to send in the militia so that the proper monopoly of violence could be restored. And more to the point, so that strike breakers could be escorted directly into the mines, no worse for wear, and the mines could begin running at full capacity again. FG is written, produced, and read to you by Chris Schoen. This episode's cold open was read by Colm O'Reilly. New episodes come out every two weeks, give or take. If you know someone who you think might enjoy this episode, please share it with them. There's a good chance they won't find out about it any other way. Also, if you are able, I urge you to subscribe to the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash effigypod. Your support helps ensure I can continue to make content like this on an ongoing basis, which at this stage is still kind of an open question. Your subscription will get you early access to each episode, plus exclusive posts from me, and if the show becomes successful enough, exclusive bonus material. It doesn't cost much. Tiers start at just $3 a month. Thanks for listening. Till next time, Bella Ciao.